Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we are joined by Mary C. Curtis. Mary is a longtime reporter and editor and now columnist for a Congressional Quarterly Roll Call covering the intersection of politics, race, and culture. She was a longtime columnist for the Charlotte Observer as well, and she's previously been a section editor with the New York Times, the Baltimore Sun, the Associated Press, and has been a contributor to the Washington Post, NPR, and many, many other places. She's an NABJ Hall of Fame honoree and has spent more than 40 years in journalism. She's also a podcast host, and we'll ask her about that too. We're going to talk to her about the op-ed project as well. She is a senior facilitator of that. Mary, that's a long list. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and I hope it just doesn't mean that I'm old. <laughs> I just been, I've been busy from a very young age, but we'll, well get into that. <laughs> that's where I want to start. Your journalism origin story. What's your journalism origin story? Well, I like to say I was a journalist before I knew what journalism was because I was a professional observer. And I was the youngest, I am the youngest of five children growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, a big Catholic household, two parents, five kids, a border. My three eldest siblings were involved in the civil rights movement. They belonged to an organization, a civic interest group, uh, and they would plan strategy and have meetings at our home, which was really a little bit unusual because it was an integrated group of people. And I was very young, a toddler, and I, still was very interested because while I didn't understand exactly what was going on, I knew it was important. And they would sing freedom songs, which really appealed to me. You, know, you learn the, the words to all these songs, Eyes on the Prize and such that you don't really know the meaning to, but they sound really good. And I, even one of my brothers, Tony, was arrested twice in sit-ins. And so I, I remember that night, the first time he was arrested, when my parents had come home from a dance, a church dance, and they were trying to get the bail. And they set a huge amount on him, which was outrageous for a civil rights demonstrator. So I became an observer and that's what a journalist is. And I also was a big reader. My mother took me for my library card when I was three years old. And so that became really my origin. Also, I very quickly realized that where I lived in West Baltimore was a place that many people had stereotypes about. They felt then as in now, people will say Baltimore, oh, you mean the wire or this or that. A former president even called it a rat infested hellhole where no, no human was fit to live. And my experience was just quite different. It was a, a black neighborhood. We had black owned businesses. We had problems, of course, it was working class, but also we were very neighborly. I scrubbed the neighbors, my white marble steps if they were, couldn't get to it uh, or too old or had problems. And that was the way it was. So I very early on recognized the importance of getting different voices out, different narratives out. And we got the newspapers in, in our home and I saw it reflected in ways that, that my community reflected in ways that were incomplete. You just saw mainly stories of crime or welfare or bad neighborhoods or bad schools. And I realized there was more to that. So I was in my high school paper in Baltimore at my all girls Catholic high school and pursued journalism in school, in college, as well as in internships. I had internships at the Associated Press, at Newsday in Long Island. And it just, it was, a, I always, I, I tell my husband, it was just the perfect profession for someone like me who liked to observe and then report out things. And 
that was really the origin. I, I really feel I've always been a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember back to an early time where something you wrote where you were able to correct a perception, whether it was of people or your neighborhood or anything in particular with, with the ability to write about it? Well, you know, I always like to do counter stories in many ways. I, I remember when the Freddie Gray situation happened in Baltimore, where it was the young man who died after a rough ride. And so many journalism organizations parachuted in. They had the burning CBS. We must have seen that footage over and over. And that library community, library, uh, community center where I got my card was across the street and it stayed open and, and they, nobody covered that. They didn't cover too much the fact that people in the community came up and cleaned afterwards, that elders in the community worked with the funeral. And it's just being able to point those things out. Uh, also, I really love pop culture, uh, different kinds of culture. I even if you've read my columns, weave them in sometimes, and that breaks stereotypes as well. Because as my my son kids and says, I do all the brows, low brow, high brow. <laughs> <laughs> I do opera, theater, you know, music, uh, all of those things, and I think that breaks the stereotype as well. When I was at the New York Times, I edited the living arts section of the National Edition, and. People, I think, were surprised how much I knew about the arts. When I was on the culture desk, I edited the dance critic and the theater critic and the classical music critics. And so that's a way also of breaking stereotypes and really highlighting some of the people of color who have always been in those worlds. I really like to use history uh, in my columns as well, because you know, my son is a historian and he talks about history in cycles and with progress comes pushback. And I do think we're a country where we don't know our history enough, which is why in my latest column, when I talk about visiting the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, that people can observe what it has meant when hate takes over communities. And of course, it's a story of triumph because there were so many wonderful civil rights workers and leaders like the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, but so much violence went into that and nobody wins when that happens. It really keeps down the whole community. So I guess I've always been weaving those narratives in my stories. And it works the other way too, because for a while there, I was writing about the Tea Party, Confederate hair. I won a Thomas Wolfe Award for writing a narrative on Confederate heritage groups where I would go to their meetings at night in many different places. <laughs> and uh, that was interesting as well to be able to go into those spaces. My husband kids insist that I feel my reporter's notebook is a shield, but I kind of do because I feel that everybody wants to tell you their stories. And, you know, when I would cover a Trump rally or something like that, I would go in the crowd and ask folks things. When I would be at a Tea Party conference and I went to the first National Tea Party Convention in Opryland, I tend not to get penned in with the press pen, but wander and just ask people things and speak with them. And I find the best stories you get uh, are those stories. What was the best, uh, the best story that you got out of doing that? Well, that Confederate yep. piece was interesting, that narrative, and I did win a major award for it. But that was interesting just to see how many, well, one, there are a lot of police officers and folks like that who are in those groups, which might explain a little bit sometimes <laughs> about the conflicts between communities of color and law enforcement. But so so many mis, you know, misinformation, disinformation, you know, you talk to everybody there and they talk about enslavement and how their ancestors owned people. They were just like family members and things like that. So you realize 
how much of, of history is built on myths and myths that people then believe in, which is why the Confederacy was elevated in the form of so many monuments and stories that really weren't true about Robert E. Lee and others. But people really take those to heart. And if you base your whole worldview on those, it's really hard to give them up. That's why this recent trend to not teach history truthfully, truthfully in schools is a dangerous one because yep. then you have more generations growing up on myths and you see so many young people like the 18-year-old in Buffalo and the 21-year-old in Charleston at the church shootings being fed on the internet these myths about whites and blacks and different place, folks' place in society and who's taking and this country is a zero-sum game. And if somebody is, you know, diversity isn't a strength, it is something that is to be feared. And that is something that is, I write about that quite a bit because it's, it's a road to disaster, really, I believe. As a columnist, a few examples of things that you've written, you've already cited a couple. You called out Congress people for its failure to call domestic terrorism by name after the Buffalo mass shootings. You drew upon quotes from Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina asking what happens to America when optimism dies. You had a couple of columns on the treatment of Supreme Court Justice Brown Jackson and her, tre her treatment, the way she was treated during the nomination process. How do you hone in on the specifics of what you're going to write about? Well, I like to say, and I say this too when I teach in op-ed project, and we'll talk about that later, that if something grabs you that you feel very passionate about, take that because that's something, writing is never easy, but it will be easier to write about something if you really have a feeling about it. Now, then you have to do your reporting and all of that because I think the strongest columns are reported columns, not rants. Even if people disagree with me, I want them to see how I got to where I got with reporting, with history, with logic, with many tools that are pieces of evidence. But if you take something that really hits you, and so I will, I will take note of that and I'll write a little note down. When I saw Congressman Jim Clyburn on a show and someone asked, you have always been this optimist. He, and I have interviewed him. He's, he's won this too shall pass. The pendulum swings one way and the other, but it lands in the middle. And, and someone asked him about, the future. And he says, I just don't know. And to see someone like this, someone who has been in jail, who has seen the worst of it, lose a little bit of that hope was something that shook me a bit. And I interview, I've interviewed him twice on my podcast. And the second time he was very upset about the difficulty of trying to get voting rights legislation through that would uh, shore up and strengthen the Voting Rights Act, really. And it's been chipped away at in the courts. When something happens like Katanji Brown Jackson, well, I have to say that hit me personally because as an African-American woman, and I know many African-American women felt the same way, we felt we've been there when you're sitting somewhere and you have all the credentials, more credentials. If you look at her credentials, they were impeccable. And yet she had these people interrupting her, disrespecting her. I believe it was Tom Cotton, it may have been, who said he didn't find one of her answers credible, which I remember turning to my husband and said, he just called this dignified, educated woman a liar, pretty much. And her family was there, her, her daughters, her husband. It was, a mount, it was such disrespect. And she was expected to take it. If she had reacted in a way that was emotional, 
then it would have been the stereotype of the angry Black woman or someone who didn't have judicial temperament, where we saw how emotionally Brent Kavanaugh reacted during his hearings, and he suffered no punishment for that. No one said anything about judicial temperament, whereas she had to be calm. And Black women get points for taking it, but why should they have to? So I, I do, you know, Black women felt something very visceral <laughs> watching her. I feel that when Cory Booker, it was his turn, the senator from New Jersey, who's African-American, said, we praise you, we hold you. And she cried a little. And some people I know said, oh, that, I don't know that that was right. And I said, well, I thought it was perfect because she's vulnerable. She's a human being. And after all of the disrespect, she has someone who was supporting her. And it was a relief and a release. And Black women are human. We aren't the super women. And she had done everything that this country says you have to do to succeed. Get your education, have a wonderful family, be above reproach, be ethical. And yet, and yet. You combine your passion for your subjects with historical references that you already referenced. But two, I guess, technical things from a writing perspective. One trademark of your work, and I know this from reading six, seven, eight pieces, is your kickers. In a column comparing Republican leaders Trent Lott and Kevin McCarthy and their admission of mistakes, you said, in retrospect, Lott's 2002 apology almost quaint, seems almost quaint, recalling a brief period when, even if you didn't mean it, you acted as though you did, as though having character and a soul actually counted. And then your leads, the most memorable one in the pieces that I read, God must be sick of the lot of us in a column about Mark Meadows' text messages with Clarence Thomas's wife of Virginia. You have 40 years experience, so I presume you've, you've, you know, you've, you've done your, your fair share of these and then some, but even so, I'd still ask, how do you come up with your leads and your kickers? Well, first of all, for anybody out there listening, I started out when I was 10 years old. So, <laughs> Okay, so 50, are we at 50 years Anyway, experience? 40 years, but it's so interesting. People have different styles and I have coached folks who have a great middle, but they have trouble coming up with the leads, the kickers or whatever. I really can't embark on a column until I have a lead. I have to know where I'm going. And that's just my quirk, which is really just my quirk. Some people, everybody's different. And so I do like to have something that is catchy. And as far as the kickers, I really am a big fan of book ending where you take the kicker and you harken back to the beginning to be people have followed you on this journey and you want to let them know it's going somewhere <laughs> and you want a call to action, maybe something to, it, it doesn't have to be go out and do this thing. It can be think a different way or a different way of looking at something or reach into your heart or something like that. But I do love that book ending to, to, to end up a little bit with where you started. I don't always do it. And, and the, the lead needs to ha- capture your attention. Nobody owes you their attention. And with so many distractions from TikTok to Netflix, to kids, to dogs, to so many things, and you have a nanosecond. People's attention spans are short, so you, you got to grab them. And, but still, you have to, you can't do the bait and switch. So if I do a kicker about God, I'm going to talk about God. I'm not going to grab you with that. Uh, there's some things, though, when I used to write, cover a lot of politicians, anything that mentioned Sarah Palin, 
was going to get people. (laughs) (laughs) And abortion is always something that is a hot button issue, even before the news of what's going to happen to Roe v. Wade. And Barack Obama, for good or ill, people loved him, but people didn't like him. But he was the only person people seem to universally like many times, although she did come in for her uh, share of racist tropes and insults, was Michelle Obama. And interviewing her was very much a standout. And she's someone who's so smart, yet so relatable. She has great political and personal gifts. I'm thinking here as you as you talk about all of the different things that you've seen in your career and done in your career, we rattled off at the beginning, I rattled off a list of all the different places you worked. Were there some turning points for you in your career where you were able to ascend or something happened that that changed the way that you approach things? Is, is there a, a story there that you'd be willing to share? Well, it was very interesting when we decided to move south because neither my husband nor I are from the South. He, he's a New Yorker and I'm from Baltimore. We're both big city Eastern kids, right? And we had a young son and I was comfortable at the New York Times because the Times is such a big organization that you can have different jobs within the Times. So you really don't get bored as I did. I was on the culture desk. I uh, edited living arts section. I worked the home section and So it was quite different and the resources were quite amazing. So if you're working on a special project, you could kind of concentrate on that. Uh, And at some point I got several job offers in the same week and I pursued them just to see what it was about. And the one that I, in the beginning was least interested in, which was the Charlotte Observer, when we came down and it was very interesting. And the editor at the time, Jenny Buckner, gave me a whole pack of papers to critique from the features department. It was for an assistant managing editor features position. And that was when I was pretty much editing. People know me now more as a columnist, but in the beginning of my career, I was much more an editor. And she, I critiqued them and, and gave a very thorough critique. And she pretty much said, come down and do some of these things that you talked about. And it was a chance to run a department and that included, like I said, I was assistant manager for features. It was the lifestyle, the entertainment. It was all the writers, all the columnists, all the artists, all the critics. And I believe most of all, a chance to explore a different part of the country. And it was, I think, very fortuitous because Charlotte was a burgeoning New South City. And now it's certainly, it's North Carolina gained a house seat. Charlotte is one of the hottest real estate markets in the country. And it also is a big city in the sense of, you know, we have sports teams, culture, and it's very diverse. We have a black female mayor. It's a majority minority city, actually. And North Carolina is like so many states where you have rural areas that are, uh, and then you have the cities and, and, and they're quite different. And so that was a big turning point to get to a city right as it is becoming this as they like to say, world-class city. I've had a chance to go with the Panthers when they went and unfortunately lost the Super Bowl in Houston. Uh, and it also was a turning point was because it's where I became a writing editor. So I had been mainly an editor. And then I wrote a column that did got a lot of play and, and, and I started to write and edit. And so I had this whole other career as a columnist. And it was a Knight Ritter paper, and then it became McClatchy. 
and my columns got picked up. I wrote two a week at a certain point, and one was syndicated. I'd be, they syndicated them all over the country and the world. And then I went away to be a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. And when I came back from that journalism fellowship, I just became strictly a writer. And I, I did some editing, and I overall looked over some of the features work. I still had a title such as that, and, but someone else handled the daily day-to-day day, day -day features editing, uh, the person who had been my deputy. And I started writing full time. And uh, usually one of the columns a week was more of a local issue and one was more national and that was syndicated as well. And that certainly changed my career. And like I said, I've had many different careers as a journalist. And the thing with journalism is that people think you are what you are most recently. So there are people who know me as a writer and columnist and they really don't know me as an editor, but I enjoyed editing and I'm a really good editor. <laughs> and I still do that through the Op-Ed Project and other things. But so that move was a big one for me personally and career-wise. And Charlotte's an interesting city and it's an American Airlines hub. So you can travel almost anywhere. I'm up in New York, the, when I, pre-COVID, I traveled all over the world with the Op-Ed Project and it was quite easy to do that. And so it's turned out, I think, quite well. I'm not sure I knew that at the time. And anytime you leave the New York Times, people always wonder why it is. So we, you talked about the op-ed project. We'll get to that in a second. I had two other questions that are career-oriented, though, that are intended for, I guess, the younger audience that's, that's listening. What's the best example for you of overcoming an obstacle in your career? You know, I do think particularly go developing as an African-American woman that, you know, after the, the Kerner report is 68, which is really before my career as the journalist started, I was younger for that, that said that they looked at the unrest and what was going on in, in, racially in the United States. And one of the things that said was we have two Americas, one black, one white, and they did call out the news media because the gatekeepers, the people making the decisions were mostly white men. And they did not look at African-American communities as whole, complete, complex, nuanced places. So you mainly did see them in the context of crime. You did not see many feature stories, cooking, education, all of the gardening. We do all of those things. And so they started hiring more Black journalists in that next wave after that. I would say more a decade later when I came through. And, and so you had to overcome stereotypes of, you know, you would get questions about, are you a reporter first or a black person? And that's a question nobody's ever asked a white reporter because white is, the assumption is neutrality, neutral, whereas black is thought to be an aberration. And so that's tough. I remember when I first started at Arizona Daily star in Tucson, Arizona as an editor. And my boss, the first day when he was introducing me, said, I'd like to introduce you to Mary Cook. And everybody gasped because that was right after Janet Cook at the Washington Post had had to give back her Pulitzer because she had fabricated a story about a young heroin addict. And afterwards, there were so many stories about is affirmative action mean that we are putting in black reporters who aren't uh, 
qualified in these jobs. And she was used as a symbol. Now, nobody ever used Stephen Glass and Ruth Shallot and other white reporters who made mistakes or who made things up as somehow emblematic. But you saw those stories appear. So when on the first day, he introduced me as Mary Cook, and then he said, oh, excuse me, Mary Curtis, that's a point where you realize that before you've even started, you have a hole you have to dig out of and that a hole you have to climb out of and you didn't dig that hole. So I think those were the kinds of obstacles that I had to overcome. I, I do believe that one thing that helped were organizations like what was then the, well, now it's the Maynard Institute, uh, named after Bob Maynard, who was a pioneering Black journalist, and his wife, Nancy Hicks Maynard, and they started an organization that had a reporting program out of Berkeley, an editing program out of the University of Arizona at Tucson, uh, and management, and I think that was out of Northwestern, and, and that came later, I believe, and I went through the editing program in the 80s. And that was great because it was people who had some experience and they had top journalists from all over the country come. And it was a grueling summer in Tucson and that meant it was hot, right? <laughs> uh, and just talk to you. We had Eileen Shanahan, the great economic journalist, talk about numbers and stories. We had Bill Connolly of the New York Times who later hired me at the New York Times to come in, Bob Webb of the Washington Post, Cheryl Butler of the Post to talk about design. And we put out our paper and that really was a boost because most of the journalists in the group were minority journalists. And it was just wonderful to just have folks say, you know, you are on the right track. You can be editors of papers. This is, you can manage. And it was good to hear that. Even though you knew that when you were at your organization, sometimes you did not get that feedback. That was a huge turning point. So you, I, they, those were wonderful mentors and everybody needs that. And I try to be one too. Was there any future interactions with that editor that introduced you that way that, that, that either went in a bad direction or a good direction? Well, he's my boss and I don't okay. want to name him. No, it's fine. But yes, he, he came to respect me and my gifts and my talents. And I got, I went from there to the Baltimore Sun, which was great because I was going back to my hometown when my son was quite young because he was born in Tucson and my mom was still living then. And so that was a wonderful reunion. And she got, she died when he was about three years old. So for those three years, he got to know his grandmom and she got to interact with my child, which was such a blessing. And I got to work at the Baltimore Sun, which was my hometown paper, which still wasn't as diverse as it needed to be when I got there, but yeah, <laughs> that's the way it was. We've talked a couple of, you've talked a couple of times about the op-ed project. What is the intent of the op-ed project? What is it? Well, its mission is just that we need to have all voices in the conversation. If you are not a part of the conversation, you're not thought of as a leader. If you don't tell your story, someone else will because nature abhors a vacuum and they'll get it wrong. And unless all voices are in the conversation, we won't have a solution. So we work with both institutions and the public. And we have folks come in who sometimes they're, I've worked with professors at Yale and Cornell and also people, everyday people. And 
they want to get their thoughts out in columns and op-eds and they have great ideas and we help them do it. We help, although it's not a writing workshop, though it's called Write to Change the World. It's more about owning your expertise and it's about thought leadership. And it's, I've met wonderful people there. I twice went to South Africa to do programs with Aspen New Voices Fellows, amazing global leaders, some of whom have started organizations after being caught in wars and all kinds of things. And it is really an inspiration. I guess I help them, but they certainly help me as well. Because the fact that they want to stand in their truth and write about different issues or appear on TV about them is whether the issue is racial justice or mass incarceration or climate or uh, LGBTQ rights is just inspirational. And if I, any way I can through these workshops that I do, through mentoring that I do afterwards, well, uh, that's just, it's my honor and privilege to tell you the truth. The Op-Ed Project was founded in summer 2008. Since then, nearly 17,000 people, the vast majority of them underrepresented and overwhelmingly women, have come through the doors, spent at least one day, in some cases a year with them. They've produced tens of thousands of published ideas, reaching hundreds of millions of viewers, readers, and listeners. And with that, I think about the challenge now of competing with Twitter or other <laughs> social media where anyone can produce a 280 character or in some, on some other platforms more and receive an inordinate amount of attention for it and then have that replicated many times over by bad actors. How do you view the challenge of, of competing with uh, those entities? Well, it is a challenge. And I do want to give a shout out to the founder of the Op-Ed Project, Katie Orenstein. It was her vision. And she's still, of course, the founder and leader, although the organization has grown. Well, I, you, it is frustrating sometimes. You, you realize that somebody's sitting down and banging out 400 words and throw it out there. And I sometimes am tempted to do or try to do that. But you know what? That's not a reasoned argument. That's not, that doesn't have evidence. That doesn't have the counter arguments. It's, it doesn't have the responsibility and ethics. It's difficult, but you can break through, particularly if you have revelations, if you have something to say that's important. And if you have, folks that you are speaking with for alongside who have important messages because you know how important it is to get all these out there. And yes, some people supplement their columns with a TikTok. I haven't done that yet. I'm not saying you shouldn't. You should use all the tools that are available to you. I, I've helped, Younger folks have helped me with, yeah, I've gotten over 5,000 followers on Twitter. I have to bump it up, you know, but so I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the Instagram or any of that, but even if you put something out there on broadcast or on TikTok or on Instagram, it helps when it's built on a solid foundation and that it can stand and it can stand scrutiny. And some of the folks I've worked with at the Opera Project whose words have stuck most, they do have solid reporting behind things. And they are often quoted because they are revealing truths. And so many people who've come through, like Carol Anderson, the public intellectual out of Emory, Dr. Anderson, who wrote White Rage, which emerged out of a, a column she did for the Washington Post through the Op-Ed Project that was the most tweeted and shared. And she got many agents bidding for that. She had written academic books before, but you know, now she's written that and one person no vote. And then also, and of course, White Rage won every award out there and was read on the, the 
floor of Congress. And I mean, that's amazing. You can have op-eds that change legislation, that change minds, that changes history. And so maybe a 280 character Twitter won't do that. It might get you very viral, but you can really make a difference. Momentary fame versus uh, something that is much more <laughs> lasting, certainly. And you can, and she's gotten, she and others have gotten fame. You know, we've had some people who, one of our folks out of Yale, it wasn't her expertise, but she wrote about a drone strike that affected her family. And through that, the Pentagon admitted that there was a civilian accidental strike and international organizations looked into this and people have started to get reparations checks because of that. So we're talking, and I work with someone through the Ford Foundation and through her op-ed helped get someone out of Iraq that had his life in danger because he had helped American troops. And it was through her op-ed and Harry Reid read, I mean, it was like amazing. It was, we were on the phone with the post and editing and, you know, can you name him? Can you not? He's in danger. He's going from place to place. And literally when you think that you had a little something to do with something that actually saved a life, that's profound. So you mentor, how do you mentor? What are, what are some things that you try to do with younger writers or just, they don't even have to be younger with, with <laughs> writers that you work with? Well, I mentor, I have been mentoring all my life. So uh, particularly women of color. Uh, I do all sorts of things. I have written uh, recommendations for Neiman fellowships because I was a Neiman at Harvard for Stanford Knight fellowships. I'm happy to say I'm very good at writing recommendations. Usually when I write them, people get it. Uh, I also have mentored one-on-one with writing and career advice. I've tried to do that in the hiring process. Even though jobs I have had, I am not the, the personnel person I am cognizant of of gifted journalists and make sure that they are part of the mix. Gifted journalists of color. I always say I kind of have extra jobs. I have, there's a lot of folks and I won't name them because it's up to them who are, you see on the news and such today that I have given advice to and have mentored throughout my career. And then I do it through organizations. I'm a member of the Journalism and Women's Symposium, which is an organization of women journalists. The acronym is JAWS and the logo is a shark with lipstick. And they have also programs where, well, it it kind of during COVID was a break, but they have annual conferences and we bring a certain amount of people who are people who aren't as experienced, younger journalists or older journalists who are just getting into the business. And we have scholarships to the conference and we do mentoring and I have mentored through that. And then I'm on the board of the Anne O'Hare McCormick Scholarships. That's named after a long time ago, New York Times journalist. And I'm on there with some wonderful journalists like my former colleague at the New York Times, Susan Shira, who is now head of the Marshall Project. Jan Pascal's our board chair, is a wonderful financial journalist, uh, wonderful all. And what we do is women who have been accepted to journalism schools, at Columbia, NYU, and the Newmark School at CUNY, City University of New York, but who need financial aid. And we give scholarship monies out to them. I'm on the board. And the toughest thing about that is we meet every year and the people who apply are also wonderful that you hate to, you know, at a certain point, you can only choose a few, right? And so we do fundraising, but 
we also give those out. And it's been my honor to be on the board. And some journalists who have come through, Sherelle Dorsey, who's a big name in the tech field, have come through as Anne O'Hare McCormick scholars. And Kelly Crow, who was one of them, was at the Wall Street Journal. She covers art and auctions, is now a board member. And uh, that is so gratifying. It's my favorite weekend because when we look at all the entries, because you get to give money away. And it's my least favorite because you have to, you can't give it away to everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have so much. So, yeah, all of, and then informally, I have many, many folks you know, that I have coffee with, that I talk with. That is uh, something that people have realized I can't say no to. <laughs> and when they even in, the, even in the pro bono work I do, it usually has to do with young people. Although I have to uh, emphasize the Anohamic Formic Scholars and others, there's no age. Uh, if you're, we've given it to folks who are mid career, are new journalists, and they're my age. Or, but it's 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 not about youth. It's about people trying to get into journalism and doing great work in journalism. And when they ask you, what is a gap in the industry that aspiring journalists can look to fill? What do you tell them? Well, you know, I think that it's so interesting. Remember when we had financial collapse and what the 2008 or whatever, and all of a sudden people were looking around for experienced business journalists who could explain it to the layperson. We always seem to see what we're missing when we see the gap in coverage. And they could have told us about that. I, as I mentioned, Sherelle, she was a, an African-American woman who's big in tech and that field and black tech. And, and that really, she has really found a niche there. Um, Michelle Singletary, who is now a very famous financial columnist at the Washington Post, who uh, I knew when we both, when she worked at the Baltimore Sun with me, and that was a wonderful niche for her finance. And I do think investigative journalism is always a wonderful path because so many people just want to be on the air or whatever, but to be a know how to look at numbers, know how to look at papers, public records, all of these things. Now that is something that will always be in demand. If you can be a journal, an investigative journalist who has receipts and back it up and just knows how to delve and see so many stories that are buried in things like financial filings and public records and all of that. I think there will always be a spot for that. What's your, when people come to you and say they're not sure about wanting to enter the profession, what do you tell them from an optimistic perspective about the future of journalism? Well, it's hard, but I had to switch around. When you say there's a moment, I I thought that I would be a print journalist forever, but then the industry changed before, and I still had 15 or whatever, 20 years to work. And I realized that I had to adapt and I had to, I got into being on television, multimedia, doing these things. And I was afraid in many ways, but I had the journalism skills that, that were basic and I could go to people, younger people often who knew about these things and who could help me. I could help them in some ways and they could help me. And I remember the first time I did a broadcast story that I taped, I went to a radio journalist and said, what is the cheapest high quality equipment I can get? <laughs> and I went with it. But, you know, there, the other piece of being optimistic is that there are young people and nonprofits and things that are doing a lot of good work, of course, ProPublica, the Marshall Project, and different ones. And on a smaller basis, you have the you have the 19th, which isn't small at all now. 
that started and, and has Erin Haynes, another journalist I've known for many years, is incredible. She and that team there working on issues of dealing with women, MLK 50, which was started in Memphis by Wendy Thomas, another young woman that used to work for me at the Charlotte Observer that I have mentored in the past. And she started that organization to do investigative work in her hometown of Memphis. And now it's been burgeoning and she does stuff with ProPublica. So if you have a dream, so many people now are embarking on their own projects and there's so much to be, so many stories to be told. One of the the slogans of the op-ed project is the story we tell becomes the world we live in. And there's so many untold stories that need to be told in order to have a world women. And these little independent organizations are doing some amazing work and then they get funding and all of that. So, you know, that is a path. And then you see some legacy so-called or journalism organizations pivoting and doing different things. So young journalists are writing. They're also shooting their own stories and doing all kinds of uh, multimedia work to make themselves valuable to news organizations to be versatile. Uh, so there is a niche. Uh, I always encourage young people, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm biased. I think we need more information with so many local newspapers shrinking. And uh, I think that's so dangerous because they're the ones that's doing the work. I remember in, when you hear about a story like Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, and before the national news hooked onto it, there was a dogged local reporter who just kept going to the police report and saying, this doesn't add up, this doesn't add up, this doesn't add up. And finally, something happened, but that started locally. And you'll see that with so many stories that it is the local dogged person for these news organizations and these small papers trying to do the best they can. So I am always going to be one to, uh, to encourage people to go in. It's a free press is the cornerstone of a democracy. I, that sounds corny, but it's true. More information, I think, is a good thing to be biased in favor of. Yeah. Um, so lastly, well, two, two things to wrap up here. Last one, one thing from in terms of the work that you do, you do host a podcast and you fill in on others. Let us know where we can hear you. Okay. You can actually, you can, I always try to put my work at maryccurtis.com. I'm trying to update the website, but I still put my work there. You can read my columns on roll call. I podcast for them is Equal Time with Mary C. Curtis. That's the uh, CQ Roll Call podcast, which looks policy and politics through a social justice lens. We're going to have a new one coming up. The last one was on Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, which we talked about both the celebration and the fact that you do have increased violence on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I also, you can Follow me on Twitter and please do at mcurtisnc3. That's at mcurtisnc3. I fill in sometimes as the host of Slate's daily podcast, What Next? What Next? It's just as that is. And that's very exciting too. And obviously, if you want to take a writing workshop through the op-ed project, you can look at the op-edproject.org for the public workshops. It's on a social justice model. So a portion of the folks there are on full or partial scholarship, which is exciting. And 
I am often on the NPR affiliate WFAE in Charlotte and sometimes on NPR itself. I sometimes do PBS Black Issues Forum. I'm kind of everywhere. But, uh, and then I contributed an essay to covering politics in the age of Trump, which is behind my shoulder here, which is about 24 top political journalists, such as myself, Ashley Parker of the Post, Major Garrett of CBS and others on covering politics in the age of Trump. And I have a couple of other books in the works. And I don't think I've forgotten anything, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. So, But you, if you look at MaryCCurtis.com, I'll let you know. Yep. Or put it on Twitter. Sure. Yeah. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your work. And then we ask you to do the same for someone or some organization that you're not affiliated with. You've named, you've named a lot of people and a bunch of organizations over the past the last 45 minutes. But is there someone that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work? Hmm, well, I'm affiliated with JAWS, journalism, NABJ, the National Society of Newspaper Columnists, to name a few. But I do support, as I said, Wendy Thomas's MLK 50. I would say to take a look at that and she'd be a great guest for you as well. And that's one, but I would say so many places have independent small journalism organizations. I know Minneapolis, a friend of mine is involved in InPost there. So I would say, look at your community and see what those organizations are. We have a local alternative paper in Charlotte, Queen City Nerve, that does great work. So they're usually staffed by people who are working really, really hard to inform you. So I've named a few, but but yeah, have Wendy on it. She can talk about MLK at 50, which has grown incredibly from her dream. Yep. And I always love to see a young person fulfill their dream. And she's a woman of color. Mary C. Curtis, we thank you for your time. And we look forward to hearing and, and reading and seeing your work in the future. Well, I appreciate you and doing this for journalism. And it's, it's such an important field to me. Uh, and I appreciate your, your salute because sometimes we hear from folks who want to do everything but salute. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod. And you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.